bad when the preacher would rather listen to the orchestra and the choir than the sermon. It's really bad, but that was wonderful. If you have your Bibles, find uh, Hebrews, please, Hebrews 11, and um, we're going to read verses 8 through 11 in just a moment, Hebrews 11. We're continuing this series, uh, The Faith of Our Mothers and Fathers, and today we talk about Sarah after having talked about Abraham last week. Lots of people are moving to Greater Huntsville. Uh, I read this week that 3,200 people a year are moving to Huntsville. That's a, lo- that's a lot of people. So that means that there, there's some people listening to me, uh, whether by television or in the room, who moved here not so long ago. Uh, if you have moved to, let's say, let's say Greater Huntsville, if you've moved here within the last two years, raise your hand. How many? Well, there, see, there are a number. If you moved here in the last 10 years, raise your hand. A lot of folks. All right, let's just say if you moved here, if you weren't born here, but you moved here at some point, raise your, raise your hand. <laughs> Almost everybody. There are a lot of from here's, but a lot of come here's. <clears throat> this is a wonderful place. Of course, um, Moving is hard, moving is hard, I know, you're packing the boxes, unpacking the boxes, leaving friends, leaving schools, leaving, some, in many cases, good churches. To move is hard, but some of you, so some of you know what it was like when your, your husband or your wife came home and said, honey, I've got great news, we're moving to, we're moving to North Alabama. Or your mother or your father came home and said, we got great news. We're moving, to, we're moving to North Alabama. And maybe that didn't feel like, maybe that didn't feel like great news. And, and let's just be honest. I know what some of you thought before you moved here. I don't want to go to Alabama. They don't have paved roads and they barely have electricity. I know what some of you thought. And then you get here and you retire here, right? That's the way it works. You get here and you realize why Huntsville's named the, by World, U.S. News and World Report the best place to live in the country. And this week, CBS said we're the 31st best place, which is an obviously flawed system they have at CBS. It's a great place. North Alabama is a great place to live. But moving is hard. If you can remember what it was like to move... If you can remember, especially if it wasn't your decision, if it was your spouse's job or maybe your, your company transferred you here against your will or your mom and dad came home and said we're moving, if you can remember the, the tension, the, the anxiety, even the sadness, you can put yourself in Sarah's place. As, as I imagine it, she had just turned out the lantern on the bedside table when Abram, as he was known then, said to Sarai, as she was known then, Honey, we're, we're moving. No, I'm, I'm not quite sure where, but the strangest thing happened today. God spoke to me, not one of those gods hewn out of stone or carved out of wood, but the big guy, the Almighty, spoke to me. It was as if I was... It was as if he were standing right there. And he said that, I know it sounds odd, but he said he's going to bless our descendants, our children and their children and and their grandchildren, and they will become a great nation, but we're going to have to leave Haran, and we're going to have to move to a place he will show us. 
So we pick up the story of Sarah in Hebrews, 2,000 years after her life. We'll, we'll look at the story as it is told in Genesis, but let's look at how God inspired the writer of Hebrews to look back at Sarah. We begin at verse 8 in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And here's Sarah, verse 11. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she's considered him, she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, is, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as, the, as countless as the sand on the seashore. I want us to consider the life of Sarah. We'll call it four phrases or four uh, movements. First of all, don't scheme. And second, don't laugh. Uh, third, don't fear doubt. And, and, and uh, third, you have those third. And four, uh, don't lose hope. First, don't scheme. Don't scheme. The first words we read about Sarah are in Genesis 11, and they are simply, Abram's wife was Sarai. So she's known in the beginning not for who she was, but as being the, the wife of, of Abram. And of course, in a patriarchal day and time, we understand that. But the second sentence about Sarah is, is sad to read. It says, Sarai was barren. She had no children. It's painfully true that in that day and time, a woman's value was largely in her ability to produce children for her husband. And if, if someone could not have children in that day and time, they were considered of, of lesser value. Abram was 75 and Sarah was 65 when Abram came home with that big news that is recorded in Genesis 12. God said he, was, he would bless us, announced Abraham, and turn our offspring into a great nation. God said that he'd bless all the nations of the world through us. They had no offspring when God decided to spring it on them. And even though they had a spring in their step, they had no offspring at this time. They left Haran, headed to Canaan, and they didn't even know where they were going. All they had was a promise that, that God would, would turn their descendants into a great nation. But they didn't have even one, not one, descendant. And therein lay a problem. So chapter 16 begins, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. It seems awfully odd and strange to us, but Sarai, wanting so badly to give her husband children, suggested that Hagar, her, her maidservant, be a surrogate mother for her for her children, if you were, if you will. And of course, in the days before advanced reproductive technology, the only way for that to happen was for her maidservant to have an intimate relationship with her husband, Abram. And that's what happened. Now, again, that seems so odd to us. It was it's so unthinkable to us. But in those days, it was apparently not, not so odd. Even still, even still, it was, it was, it was a, bad situation waiting to happen. 
In Genesis 16, we continue reading in verses 3 and 4. Sarai took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. So far, Sarah's plan was working. But look what happens next. When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Not surprisingly, when the maidservant becomes pregnant with Sarai's husband, Tension erupts in the, in the family. Eventually, Abram would have to send Hagar and his son Ishmael away. A quick side note. For over 70 years, the world has worried about the Middle East, about the Arab-Israeli conflict. And it is rooted right here in this story. For the Arab people and Islam trace their their history back to Abraham through Ishmael, the daughter of Hagar, the maidservant. And, and the Jewish people and, and, the, and the Jewish faith and the Christian faith tra- trace our, our heritage, our, our history back to Abraham through, through Isaac and Sarah. And we'll get to Isaac in a minute. I, I'm not, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But it's rooted, the, the Arab-Israeli conflict is rooted right here in the conflict in this family. So while, while Sarah was not wrong by the morals of her day to, to ask her maidservant to bear her husband's child, it was wrong because it was scheming. See, Sarah didn't trust that God could handle his promise, that Sarah felt like God had written a check he couldn't cash, that God had, had over-promised, so she needed to help God. She needed to... She needed to pull some strings. She needed to work some angles. She needed to finagle. She felt like she had to scheme. But faith, Warren Wearsby said rightly, faith is living without scheming. Hebrews 6.12 says it is through faith and patience that we inherit what has been promised. Faith is living without scheming. Now, when you have a dream, even if it's a God-given dream, we, we're tempted, are we not, to, to make sure that we give God a little help, to, even if it means working the angles and finagling. And Let me give you an example. So, remember last week I told you that when Brennan, our daughter, was 14, that she, on her own, read the story of Abraham and came out for breakfast and said, hey, I, I think this is a sign we should move to Richmond. We were living in Kentucky, and I was in talks with the pastor search committee at Bonaire Baptist in Richmond. Well, that was March-ish. But in January, a couple of months earlier, I had been down in Talladega at Shaco Springs at a WMU, or Women's Missionary Union, event, and there was a man there named John White who was a member of Bonaire Baptist in Richmond. Now, follow me now. So I'm in early talks with the search committee at Bonaire Baptist, and John White, I find out, is a member. He was representing the International Mission Board. He was treasurer at the time of the International Mission Board. And he happened to be the son-in-law of Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. So I thought, well, this guy probably has a little influence at, uh, at Bonaire. And I thought, if I could just meet John and let him see what a really swell guy I am, then he'd go back to Richmond and he would call the pastor of the search committee and say, hey, I met a really nice guy down in Talladega. You all should consider him. And the pastor of the search committee would think, yeah, well, you see where I'm going, right? But I had a check in my spirit. 
Now, I'm not above doing something like that. I almost did, but I had this check in my spirit that, you know, if I do that, that will be scheming. And if, and if I go to Richmond, I want to go because God has opened doors, not because I've pulled strings. Now, please hear me. When they invited me for an interview, I went and I did my best and I made sure Carrie was with me because I knew she'd make me look good. So I did, and, when, and I did my homework and I, you know, I, and when they asked for my resume, I, I sent them my resume. I did the appropriate things. But it's one thing to do what's appropriate. It's another thing to, to cross a line and to, to scheme. I, I hope I'm, I'm communicating. There are things that are appropriate to get that new position or wh- whatever it is. After all, Abraham and Sarah had to do their part, right? I mean, you get what my drift? I mean, if they're going to have descendants, they had to do their part. But, but she went too far. She schemed. Now, do your part. Another quick, I know these are preacher stories, but I hope you can apply them. Another preacher story, a guy named Richard Trader was Carrie's pastor down in Gadsden, and he told me when he first went to seminary a long time ago, he and his roommate, they were brand new, classes had not even started yet, but they both wanted to be a pastor so badly, and the school had a placement office, so Richard said to his, his roommate, uh, I'm going to the placement office and give them my resume. And his roommate said, I'm not going to give my resume to the placement office. I'm just going to pray. Richard said, I've already prayed. I'm taking my resume to the, to the placement office. I'm not suggesting you have to be completely passive. Do appropriate things. Just don't scheme. Faith is living without scheming. It is with faith and patience that we inherit what God has promised. If we think we have to help God, then maybe, maybe we're about to cross a, a line. Okay, don't scheme. Second, don't, don't laugh. Don't laugh at God's plans. Fast forward a few years, and Sarah and Abraham had some angels who visited. At least one was a divine messenger, an angel who looked like a man, some have suggested even that, that this was God himself, that he had become flesh temporarily because this was such a big deal that we don't know. But a divine messenger says to Abraham, your wife is going to, to have a baby. Now remember, they've been on Social Security a long time by, by now. And, and, and Sarah, who was listening through the, the tent, uh, laughed. And the divine messenger overheard her laugh and asked Abraham, why did, why did your wife laugh? And then he asked the million-dollar question, is anything too hard for God? What a beautiful question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And this might be the most important thing about the story. Don't laugh at, at God's plans. By the way, Isaac... Their son, the name Isaac means laughter. So one day, Sarah's laughing at the very notion that she would become a mother. And then nine or ten months later, she looks down at that pink little promise in her arms and she laughs. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it, she must have said. And his name is Isaac. So when you see the word Isaac, the name Isaac in Bible study, your own Bible study, Sunday school, you just remember laughter and remember don't, don't laugh at God's 
plans. Don't scheme, don't laugh. Third, don't fear doubt. Sarah laughed when she heard she was going to have a baby. To say she doubted is an understatement. And yet, we go ahead 2,000 years to the book of Hebrews, and it says that Sarah was a person of faith. Now, let's get this straight. So she laughs at the promise that she's going to have a baby. She doubts, certainly. And then... And then God inspires the writer of Hebrews and says, when you describe Sarah, you tell everybody who will read that she's a person of of faith. Now that tells me something. That people of faith sometimes doubt. We haven't done this in a long, we haven't had audience participation in a long time. Would Would you repeat after me, please? Sometimes... People of faith have doubts. Now there, we've just, we've opened it up. Now we don't have to worry about that anymore. Because I think some of us are afraid to admit that. Afraid to admit to ourselves. Certainly afraid to admit to our Sunday school class. But the truth is, sometimes people of faith have doubts. Like the man, remember the man who pleaded for the health of his son Jesus, heal my son. He said, then he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I I do have faith, but I just got to be honest. There's some things I'm not quite sure of. Reminds me of Paul and Nancy, a couple in our first church. As far as I know, Paul never doubted a thing. He had a a pretty simple faith. And and if, if the Bible said it, he believed it. Almost if the preacher said it, he believed it. He just had a simple faith. Nancy, on the other hand, struggled with practically everything. Nancy was always asking why. Nancy was always asking how. Her faith was different from Paul's, but but her faith was no less profound and no less genuine than Paul's. The truth is that if if you're wrestling, she was a ponderer. If you are a ponderer, then you are prone to ask why and how, and that's okay. Now, I'm not, asking, I'm not suggesting that you settle for doubt, but neither should you fear doubt. The fact that you are not certain about everything is okay. Faith, by its definition, implies mystery. Faith, by definition, implies uncertainty. Faith by definition implies ambiguity. I'm not suggesting that you settle for doubt. I am suggesting that you not be afraid or ashamed if you're just not sure about everything. Don't scheme. Don't laugh. Don't fear doubt. And fourth, don't lose hope. God doesn't often bless 90-year-old ladies with babies. But the fact that God once did makes us people of hope. There are not a lot of stories like Sarah's, or else we would have unrealistic expectations. There are a few stories like Sarah's, Where God took his sweet time, but finally showed up that we are people 
of hope. There are a couple of images I want to share with you that have been helpful to me in thinking about being a person of hope. The first is that that hope is like tipping the delivery guy before the pizza comes. Hope is like tipping the delivery guy before the pizza comes. A couple of weeks ago on the radio, I heard a guy railing against the fact that he has to tip before the delivery guy comes. When he calls, and I don't know where he's calling, but wherever he calls for his pizza, they say you have to tip there, not, not when it comes. And he was railing about that. What if it's late? What if it's upside down? He said, why do I have to tip? And I kind of get it, right? I kind of get that. Why, why would I have to tip before the delivery guy comes? Well, hope, hope is kind of like that. It's like, it's like assuming that God's going to deliver. Now, it might not be a supreme. You with me? You might have ordered ancho, uh, anchovies and, and God said, anchovies not good for you. I'm going to send you Pepperoni. This is really probably theologically unsound, but I hope you will. <laughs> In fact, that just sometimes I say things that later I wonder, why did you say that? This may turn out to be one of those moments, but I, <laughs> I hope you get my point. It may not be exactly what you asked for, but hope says that God is faithful and, that, and that, that he will supply my need. Hope believes Philippians 4.19, for example, that says God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. According to his riches. So he, if he writes a check, he's got plenty. He's got plenty behind it. Hope is like tipping before the delivery guy comes. Here, here let, me try, let me try another one. Hope is like, is like thanking God before the coffee comes. And this is probably no more theologically sound than the previous one, but let me give it a try. You know that we have a partnership with a church in New York called Graffiti, and the longtime pastor of that church, Taylor Field, knew a guy named Whistling Jack. Now, Whistling Jack had been a surgeon in New York City, but his drinking problem had cost him his his uh, career and cost him his family, so he spent most of his days in the park, the public park, near Graffiti Church. So Taylor Field, the pastor, got to know Whistling Jack. And Whistling Jack always seemed so content, even, even though he'd lost so much. And um, so Pastor Taylor asked him about his contentment. He said, you know, it's like this. If, if you were to say to me, I'm going to go across the street and get your coffee, I would thank you then I wouldn't wait until you got back. See, that's hope. It's believing that if God says coffee's coming, then you just thank him then. Now, it, again, it might not be a cappuccino or a frappuccino or a macchiato or whatever you ordered. It might be plain coffee, but the coffee's coming. You with me? Hope is believing that God will supply all your need according to his riches in Christ, in glory in Christ Jesus. It's believing that I might, might not yet be experiencing victory in Jesus, but I know that at the core of who I am, 
I'm going to be okay. Follow me. I might not yet be able to say I've seen the victory, but I but biblical hope says at the core of who I am, at the core of who I am, God is going to make sure that I'm okay. The pizza's coming. The coffee's coming. So don't scheme and don't laugh and don't fear doubt and whatever you do, don't lose hope.